An imminent decision looms in Fulton County's Trump probe. We are asking that the report not be released because you haven't seen that report. Decisions are imminent. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Greg Bluestein. And I'm Patricia Murphy, and we are two of the political insiders here at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. If you're just joining us for the first time, welcome, and be sure to follow us on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And be sure to rate us and review us while you're there, because it really helps us grow the show. Patricia, there's so much to talk about in this episode. This is one of those days where we really struggled with what to lead off with, because between the Fulton County special grand jury developments between the new Atlanta Journal-Constitution UGA poll of Brian Kemp's standing, of Donald Trump's standing, and of course, of legislative issues. And then you add to that, this ongoing standoff over Cop City, there's a lot to talk about. We're going to have our hands full this episode. Yes, it was a, you know, four as good as the others, but I think we know what we're going to lead off with because it's what everybody's asking us about. And that's that Fulton County special grand jury hearing today. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. This Fulton County special grand jury hearing was so closely watched by members of the media, by attorneys, and of course by Donald Trump's allies and inner circle because this was the really the one of the first times we, we got to see District Attorney Fonnie Willis speak very openly about the recent developments in the investigation. And her office was fighting a motion by a media coalition that was led by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution asking Judge Robert McBurney to publish the details of the special grand jury report. Now, at this moment, we don't know whether or not Judge McBurney will go ahead and agree with the media consortium that this special grand jury report needs to be uh, revealed to the public, but he certainly suggested that he was open to that argument. He said he wasn't going to make any rash decisions, but he seemed like he was at least willing to give it a very close look. And we also learned from Fannie Willis that a decision on whether to seek indictments is imminent following the eight-month special grand jury investigation. So we could be seeing developments a lot quicker than I think a lot of folks who had been watching this probe really closely thought we could. We were at. Yes, heading into this hearing, I think we all expected that the 
potential targets of this investigation would not want it released publicly right now. There is language in the Georgia statute that shields publication, if anything, um, sort of impugns the character of a sitting public official. And there are multiple public officials who've been named as potential targets in this investigation. So we knew that that group of people wouldn't want it made public. But what we learned today is that Fonnie Willis also very much does not want this made public right now, really to protect, I think, the integrity of her next steps. And the fact that she's talking about next steps and the integrity of those next steps really makes it feel like there could be indictments coming. Otherwise, if there were sort of no further action planned, it's hard to see who would need protection at this point. Mm-hmm. But had this been released publicly, if the judge had ruled, let's let's go ahead and just let her rip, let's, let's release it as soon as possible, that would have really just gone to the wolves of the media, frankly, including us. We would go through that with a fine tooth comb, start to really divine where's this going, who's in the most trouble, and really start to sort of try it in the court of public opinion. You don't want the court of public opinion getting involved if you're a DA until you've really got your ducks in a row for an actual court trial and real indictments. Uh, You want your jury pool not to be biased or swayed. So it really made it feel like Fannie Willis has more planned because she is working very hard to keep that more planned, to keep to give herself the most leeway possible. Uh, Judge McBurney, as he was listening to these arguments, particularly from the DA's office, asking that this report be kept under wraps for now, um, even her office said, look, eventually most of this probably will become public, but right now we don't want that to happen. And he cited the January 6th committee and said, well, that committee released its report publicly. That committee recommended indictments and the world kept turning. I'm not exactly sure how this is different. Um, The DA's office argued that this is different because all of that testimony just about was in the public view already. People already watched all that testimony happen. They not only knew who was testifying, but what they were saying for the most part. It was televised internationally. And so those indictments were something that people had already sort of had a pretty good sense of where this was going and why they would be making those recommendations. That's just not the case right now with the Fulton County Special Grand Jury. It's been totally secret. Uh, Very few leaks coming out of that building even. Uh, The witnesses going in aren't talking. We're not hearing any specific details coming out of there. So it really has been quite a sealed process. And constitutional lawyers will tell you the the thing that judges really are more likely to protect is information that you can't get back. You know, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. So if information is out there, there's no way to go back and put it back in. So you have to know that you're comfortable having that in the public domain, no matter what happens next. And so that's really what McBurney's going to be evaluating. But the arguments from Willis's office really made it sound like they have pretty significant plans coming up. And we should add that it's tight-lipped despite our best efforts to pry out information from folks who witnesses, from uh, Grant, you know, you name it. Uh, there have been a, a team of reporters, the AJC and other outlets also, trying to get the, the latest and greatest information from that grand jury probe because that's our job. But, you know, Patricia, one of the biggest giveaways to me that indictments could soon be in the offing was Fonnie Willis as the district attorney's contention that revealing this report could prejudice juries down the road if and you know perhaps when 
she does bring criminal charges and a reminder that the special grand jury can recommend whether charges be brought, but it's still up to Fannie Willis to decide whether or not to pursue those charges and then a, a normally convened grand jury to indict. So there's still another set of processes to go. We might not, you know, even if the report comes out and it's not really heavily redacted and we see that the special grand jury is recommending charges, it still doesn't mean that it, these are instantaneous, right? There's a there's still a long path to go. But as we heard from Fonnie Willis, that long path could really jumpstart imminently. And one more thing I'll add from, you know, that was really interesting in the hearings is that even prosecutors suggested this report should eventually be published. One prosecutor, Mr. Wakefield, said it's a question of time. Now is just not the time. So another sign, because you mentioned that case law, it was dated back to 1961, that essentially said, it was a state appellate court ruling that essentially said that a special grand jury's production, if it has disparaging information, should not be published until there's an indictment. Uh, and so that's what a lot of these legal arguments revolved around. And even though there are some precedent, some legal precedents for this case for the judge to go off of, truly there is no precedent for what's happening right now. This is totally unprecedented. So it really puts a, a heavy burden on McBurney to really make these choices carefully it, with a, a real effort to make sure that whatever the will of that special grand jury is, that it is not compromised by the timing of the release of this information. So um, you could tell he was really going through every single argument that you could possibly ask, what about this? What about that? Arguing the other side, how about this? So he's you know very well known here locally. Uh, somebody's taking it very, very seriously and anybody who was watching it, and there were plenty of people watching it because a number of the cable networks were dipping out of it live as it was happening. So I think that it created an atmosphere that looked like this is a very serious undertaking. The judge is highly skilled, highly equipped to be making this decision. And it looks like we'll have, do you know when uh, when a decision would come out? The judge said it would not be immediately. He said he would not be make a rash decision. He said it won't be on the front page of the paper suddenly. It sounded like he was going to give the litigants both sides time to hash it out in dueling court motions. And for all those who are watching, as Patricia just mentioned, you know, it was on live TV as well as on YouTube. Our editor-in-chief, Kevin Riley, and one of our managing editors, Sean McIntosh, were kind of front and center, sitting right behind one of uh, the media attorneys, Thomas Clyde, Tom Clyde, who was arguing the case on behalf of media. So uh, I did text Kevin like, you know, hey, you're on TV, behave. Make sure, make sure you don't do anything because he was being broadcast all over. Um, for our listeners who want a lot more information on the latest twists and turns of this special grand jury probe, we invite you to listen to the award-winning AJC podcast, Breakdown, helmed by AJC veteran courthouse reporter Bill Rankin and Tamar Hatlerman, a former Washington correspondent turned basically a Fulton County grand jury re reporter who's been all over every development in this case. Breakdown is your go-to for all the latest news as well as Politically Georgia. Okay, Patricia, it has been so busy, as you said, and not only do we have special grand jury developments and other breaking news, we also had the release of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution UGA poll. We do these polls pretty much every year as the legislative session convenes to give Georgians and frankly also politicians a, a sense of where the electorate is at on some of the biggest issues under the Gold Dome. And among the takeaways was that most Georgia voters want to ditch runoffs. 
that lead to seemingly endless election seasons. That is written by our colleagues Mark Nisi and Maya T. Prabhu. And 58% of those surveyed said Georgia should eliminate the requirement for runoff election when no candidate in a general election wins a majority. That's compared to 39% who prefer to keep the state's existing system. In my view, it's going to be real hard to completely eliminate the runoff. We'll see if it happens this year. My bet is, you know, it's a real tough road, but certainly Georgia voters have spoken because we've been through, you know, these grueling runoffs, not just the last two election cycles, but of course many before that, but the last two election cycles really put it into focus. We had a nine-week runoff in 2020 that spilled past New Year's, and then of course we just had the four-week runoff between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock that tested a lot of patience of a lot of voters, Patricia. Well, it tested a lot of patience of voters. It tested a lot of patience of Americans, uh, particularly in 2020 when they were waiting to see who's going to control the Senate. It all comes down to Georgia. By 2022, there was a chance that it could all come down to Georgia again, but it ended up being a difference of just one Senate seat. However, the reason it all comes down to Georgia again and again is because Georgia's a battleground state because the United States Senate is so closely divided and because Georgia is the only state with laws like these that require a runoff in both the primary and general elections. So you start to ask, why is Georgia an outlier and why can't Georgia not be an outlier? Why can't we just do it like everybody else? Um, However, you know, I think that lawmakers will appreciate the results of this poll, but the real poll that they're going to be taking are the GOP majority and how do you guys feel about changing the rules? Uh, yes or no? <laughs> because mm-hmm. it's, it is, this is about people who just got elected under the laws as they have existed and looking forward to what is our best chance to continue to get elected. If that means sticking with the runoffs, they're going to stick with the runoffs. If it means changing it up and uh, tilting the playing field in their favor a little bit, That's probably what they're going to do. And that's exactly what uh, Georgia legislatures have done over the years as control of um, the Senate, control of the state has sort of tipped back and forth. You really do see them go in and start to noodle with these runoffs because they start to look like they're favoring one side or the other. I don't know which side this is favoring right now because Warnock would have won anyway in 2022. He would also have won in 2020, although David Perdue would have won in 2020. So it's hard to say exactly who would get the upper hand. And I think that's why it feels like we're going to be at a bit of a stalemate in terms of how we change these laws as well. Yeah, it used to be an easy call for Republicans because up until 2020, they won every statewide runoff, general election runoff in modern Georgia history. And then 2020 changed everything with John Ossoff's victory and Senator Warnock's victory. And as you mentioned, it was David Perdue who came out, you know, ahead of John Ossoff in the first round of voting and barely missed that 50% plus one mark that he needed to win outright. Senator Warnock's position was a little different because that was a special election. And so that was a free-for-all. There was, you know, more than a dozen candidates on the ballot. So that would have probably ended in a runoff, even if they do change the rules, that will still require a runoff because it's a special election. But then you fast forward to this race where Senator Warnock finished ahead again in 2022. And so if you're a Republican right now, you're looking to, you know, if you're you're a leading state lawmaker that's looking to preserve the GOP majority, it's not an easy call to end the runoff anymore or to keep the runoff anymore, I should say, because it doesn't necessarily guarantee a victory. Some of the other big developments in this poll, 
was a plurality of voters, and this is not a surprise because we've seen this in poll after poll, a plurality of voters said that the state should expand gambling laws to allow betting on professional sports. 48% or so of those polled this year said Georgia should legalize gambling on pro sports, while about 37% of respondents said they oppose allowing it. And of course, we also asked about one of the biggest issues of you know, of this decade, which is abortion. And Georgia voters polled by the AJC were split on how restrictive access to abortion should be. Half said the state should make it easier to get the procedure, but the other half either said it should be harder or they like the laws the way they are. And of course, the law that's in the books right now is uh, restrictions that ban most abortions as early as six weeks. So the abortion responses are the ones that surprised me the most because in the past we have seen a pretty obvious majority of Georgians who opposed changing Roe v. Wade, opposed the Supreme Court decision to lift those protections for abortion at the federal level. And then to uh, fast forward a little bit, there was polling done on the six-week abortion ban in Georgia as it was written and as it was being considered. That also had minority support. So then to fast forward, now that it's implemented and now that it's been enacted, to see that the state is about 50-50 split, you know, sort of half for more restrictions, half against, and want to see looser restrictions. Um, that is a real sea change. I'd want to see more details on that and kind of continue to pull that question and see if anything changes as time goes on. There has not been any major stories or developments yet where we've had a sort of a major national level news event related to abortion that we have seen in the past in some other states. Uh, There was a story coming out of the Midwest when a 10-year-old girl who had been raped was uh, had had a hard time accessing abortion after abortion laws were restricted in her state. That was the type of thing that really seemed to move voter sentiment. But here in Georgia, the bill has gone into effect. Women are either traveling out of state, accessing abortion by mail, or kind of assessing their options earlier. It's hard exactly to say. So I think we need more time and more information before we declare that uh, public opinion is now evenly split on this issue, because it's a huge change in where voters were even six months ago. But it's a really important data point and something that I'll certainly be watching carefully. And Patricia, this is really interesting to me. Think about it. Two years ago, Governor Kemp's approval rating in Georgia, January 2021, was sitting at just above 40%. He was being booed at Republican gatherings. He faced you know, the imminent challenge from Stacey Abrams, who seemed on the upswing. Now, according to the AJC poll, Governor Kemp's approval ratings are at the highest they've ever been since he's been governor. He's sitting at 62% approval as he enters a second term. That is a lot of political capital to burn. Um, that is compared to only about 30 or so percent of people who either somewhat or strongly disapprove of the governor. So he's in a unique state right now. And we also polled other leading politicians. President Joe Biden, only about 35% of Georgia voters approve of the way Biden's handling his job compared with nearly 60% who disapprove. So he is deeply underwater in Georgia. And look, Donald Trump's uh, ratings aren't that much better. As Donald Trump wages his comeback bid, a majority of Georgians, 55% have a negative view of him. Even former Vice President Mike Pence is underwater as well with a favorability rating of only 35%. And then for good measure, we also 
polled about John Ossoff, a first-term Democrat, we found 46% approve of his performance, 30% who disapprove, but one quarter of voters is undecided. So at least among the politicians we polled, Governor Kemp stands as the most popular one of all. Yeah, Kemp is in this incredibly unusual position where he has this standalone independent brand. He is not tied to Donald Trump, who's underwater. He is getting through this phase of having taken a very early stand on COVID, and the state largely came out of that okay. At this point, the unemployment rate in the state is the lowest in history. So he's got this kind of roaring economy that he can take credit for. He's also passed a number of very conservative bills, uh, including restrictions on abortion and loosening loosening restrictions on guns. So he's got the conservatives pretty solidly on his side. But there have not been any major news events, again, post-loosening of those gun restrictions with constitutional carry or any major news events related to the abortion restrictions. So I feel like those are feeding into the woodwork a little bit. Um, There was an immense amount of anxiety around those bills as they were getting passed. A lot of voter sentiment strongly against them, but they're sort of passed and over and we haven't heard about them a whole lot except during Kemp's GOP primary. So I feel like he's got the right buttoned up. He's got the middle of the road, economic voters, uh, people who are really focused on those pocketbook issues, pretty happy. I would say it sure didn't hurt to keep extending the gas tax exemption for almost a year before he got reelected. And then even uh, some Democrats, I think, because of his huge feud with Trump, kind of like Brian Kemp. You know, they don't hate the guy. They really feel like he stood up for the state in the one time that they really needed him to. And that was when Donald Trump was coming and trying to overturn the 2020 election. And he didn't do it with Brian Kemp's help. And you can't say the same about other Georgia leaders. So I think he's really set himself up for a uniquely positive run here. And um, I think we felt that way when we were listening to all of the voter feedback, when we were watching him campaign first in the in the primary and then again in the general election, and the poll really bears that out. Now, it's extremely early for this <laughs> for him in the second term. He still, it looks like, is going to be out campaigning with other Republicans who may or may not be running for president. I mean, he's going to start attaching himself to more political figures who anybody you're talking about is going to have some kind of objection to other Republicans who Kemp attaches himself to. So, you know, sort of TBD. But right now, boy, he is really soaring incredibly high. And to your point, that is just a huge turnaround from where we saw him less than two years ago. Yeah, he's got some political capital to burn. We don't know if this is the apex. We don't know where this is. But we know he's gone through a lot of peaks and valleys. And he knows better than most how fickle politics can be. And I think his aides and advisors understand too that if he wants to get a big project done, now is the time. You've got completely new legislative leaders in both the House and the Senate. You've got dozens of new lawmakers. He's sort of the main power player. Well, I don't have to say sort of. He is the main power player at the Capitol right now. And look, that's why the governor's state of the state address this week matters because we still don't know a lot of the big pieces of his agenda. We heard in the inaugural address that he wants to make Georgia the electric mobility capital of the U.S. That is one of his sort of legacy visions, his, his, a big piece of his agenda. We know he wants to crack down on violent crime. We know his budget calls for $2 billion in refunds and pay raises for teachers and other state employees. But we still don't know the contours of many of his other policies, particularly where he stands on his push to enhance 
and make it easier to build affordable housing. So the state of the state address is not going to be your typical state of the state address. He's coming in on a high note and we'll see how he tries to use that capital. You know what? Speaking of affordable housing, the very highest number that we saw in that entire poll was a 90% approval rating for a proposal pretty much floated by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. We put that in the poll. Would you like to see minimum standards for housing? That is because of this incredible investigation that our AJC colleagues have done called Dangerous Dwellings, looking into this just the really terrible living conditions that some of our fellow Georgians are living in, paying rent anyway, paying rent and still living in uh, situations where they have um, kind of rat-infested, dangerous fire traps. It, you sort of, you name it, and it's all happening in these apartments, but they still have landlords who are able to charge what they want and evict them uh, when they choose to because of the really low standards statewide for housing. And so that's something that um, 90% approval rating from Georgia voters. And that is one of the rare things where you're going to get that kind of consensus. And so if I were a Georgia lawmaker, I might be drafting a bill today because obviously I know it would get a lot of uh, very high approval from my fellow constituents. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy. We think the Morning Jolt newsletter sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it every morning if you're a subscriber to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You can join the community now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts and your first month of unlimited digital access is just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts so you always know what's really going on. Patricia, it was a busy weekend as well with the tragic news about the shootout at the site of Atlanta's planned public safety center in DeKalb County where, at least according to authorities, an activist, one of many who had been camped out there protesting the planned center, opened fire, according to the GBI, at a state trooper. The state trooper fired back. The state trooper was wounded. The activist was killed. It's a 26-year-old who is basically one of the faces of that protest movement who's been profiled in many media outlets and covered by the AJC and others. And that precipitated a violent protest. There was a peaceful demonstration earlier on Saturday night, but a small group of those demonstrators stayed out, went to the heart of downtown and engaged in a violent and chaotic protest that was quickly quickly contained by law enforcement. But before it was contained, there was buildings that were vandalized, rocks were thrown by mask-clad 
demonstrators and a police car were set on fire. That prompted a very swift reaction from Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens, from his new police chief, and from state officials who all condemned the violence and called for justice. Several of those activists were charged with domestic terrorism and other felony counts. And as the mayor mentioned in an interview on CBS, many of these activists were not from the city of Atlanta. Uh, They were from out of town, but some of them were. Some of them were local as well. So it is a very tricky situation for the new mayor, who's now just about a year into his job. Of course, the whole threat of Buckhead cityhood still hangs over him like a shadow. It's still out there. You know, it hasn't been completely scuttled yet, although it has failed in its first year. And just in general, beyond Buckhead cityhood, there's just the specter of state Republican leaders who are not satisfied, um, or, or there's a concern that they will not be satisfied with the steps he's taking to curb violent crime. And so far, I haven't heard that from them. So far, uh, you know, when I talked to Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones, when I talked to Speaker John Burns in his office, when I talked to Governor Kemp, they are satisfied and encouraged with Andre Dickens's response to the crime. But at the same time, we know that their patience is not without its limits. And we've also heard from them saying, hey, they want his efforts, they want his steps to have time to take, you know, to take root in Georgia. But absent any sort of improvements in fighting crime, they might step in and take action. It doesn't necessarily mean Buckhead Cityhood. It could mean all sorts of other things. It could mean more state oversight over law enforcement. It could be new law enforcement units tackling violent crime. We already know the governor started an Atlanta-based task force that seeks to curb street racing and, and, and other crimes in the city of Atlanta. And so it's a very, very touchy situation that Atlanta's in right now. And, you know, another one of Andre Dickens' very first acts when he was elected, the first thing he did when he was elected was go to Buckhead the next morning, uh, two places in Buckhead, and appear to greet voters and say, hello, I'm going to be the mayor. Let's have a conversation. Let's sort of establish a relationship. He also lives in Buckhead. Uh, He lives sort of in the sort of southern part of Buckhead. So he's kind of known to be a neighbor, but he went a really sort of beyond what we've seen most mayors do recently and really start to insert himself visibly into the community. Once he was sworn in, one of the very first things he did as mayor was to open a police precinct in the very middle of Buckhead. It's extremely visible. You see police cars parked on the street right there. It's at the corner of West Paces Ferry and Peachtree, really sort of the sort of the heart of that Buckhead um, triangle intersection. So I think Dickens' efforts to both have a visible presence in Buckhead and then also have a behind-the-scenes presence and ongoing effort to stay very close to lawmakers behind the scenes, go going over to their offices, just sitting in their ante rooms waiting to get in to have meetings, having some of those lawmakers, even the pro-Buckhead city lawmakers, come to City Hall and explain their concerns and what they're upset about. All of that, I think, has really insulated him for now um, from this Buckhead cityhood movement. But um, the mayor said very specifically, as did David Ralston when he was uh, still alive and still speaker, you know, we give him about a year. So right now we're at about the year mark and it feels like they're pretty satisfied where things are. But then you have an event like this shooting followed by a protest followed by a riot. That's really all you can call it. And we had these um, 
people uh, smashing windows at the 191 building, which is where the police foundation is. The Atlanta Police Foundation has its offices and that's built in that building. That's why it was targeted. And then setting police cars on fire. It really starts to have major, major echoes of the past and the exact types of things that Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms just struggled with immensely. I think it's important to talk about the details of what's going on in DeKalb County. There have long been these protests, but they're environmental protests about what building a big center there, including a center where you want to have simulated explosions, so you can't have a lot of trees, um, concerns about what that does to the ecology in this heavily, densely wooded area of DeKalb County. That's what the protest started out as. I think once the protester was killed by Georgia State Troopers, it began to take on additional protesters protesting police violence protesting sort of criminal justice issues that we've seen before and then there was this third bucket of people many of whom as you said just came into atlanta to be a part of this protest and then probably to just start a riot and uh, they were arrested very very quickly and it did feel like dickens and the other leaders had really taken the lessons of what worked for Keish Lance Bottoms and what didn't work the last time around and came out very forcefully in support of the police, also saying it's important to have peaceful protest, but when it's not peaceful, that's a huge problem and you're going to get arrested. That's basically what Dickens said. And he just, he made it very, very clear that he was supporting police in that instance. And I think that was the message he wanted to send. We heard something very similar from Ossoff and from Warnock. And um, going forward to your point though, it's just a very dicey situation there are still protesters in those woods and uh, we'll have to see what happens next yeah the message from democrats was essentially we support peaceful protest but this was not a peaceful protest this was a, a violent chaotic as you described it, a riot and it was contained really quickly but police found on these activists explosive devices and they said there's reason to believe that this was intended to go much beyond the two or so blocks that were damaged of downtown atlanta and one thing that how this dovetails back to the rest of our conversation about the legislative session is that we know the Republican leaders, Governor Kemp, Lieutenant Governor Jones, uh, Speaker Burns, they've all made public safety perhaps the theme of the legislative session, um, workforce development and public safety. And so we've already heard of plans for new crackdowns of violent crime, stiffer penalties, and particularly one that will be really interesting and one will be really dicey are calls to basically create more oversight of prosecutors, of local prosecutors who are deemed to be not acting urgently enough and aggressively enough to prosecute, to bring to justice folks who are committing violent crimes or at least accused of violent crimes. I'm not sure how that's going to play out. It's a very tricky situation. It was described to me by one lawmaker as basically a JQC for district attorneys and JQC is Judicial Qualifications Commission. It's an oversight panel that kind of uh, watchdogs Georgia's judges. There is not necessarily the same sort of outfit for prosecutors. There's a prosecuting attorney's council, but it has a different role. So we'll see how that plays out. But I think there will be a major push from Republican lawmakers to go in that direction and to get tougher on crime. And it's a complete deviation or not. It's just a, it's just a strategy, strategic shift from what we've seen in the eight years of Governor Nathan Deal's tenure, where he spent eight years overhauling the criminal justice system 
aimed at, you know, there were some initiatives that cracked down on violent crime as well. But for the most part, it was aimed at diverting nonviolent, lower level offenders away from costly prison sentences and towards other means of rehabilitation. So there's a lot of focus on, you know, a sort of right to justice reform movement and not uh, new crackdowns. And now we've firmly gone in the other direction and we'll probably see a lot more of that this session. Yeah, we even saw a bill introduced earlier this week by State Senator Brandon Beach, a Republican from Alpharetta, to create mandatory minimums for gun crimes. We have not heard about mandatory minimums really since before the times of Nathan Deal. There has been such a focus on criminal justice reform that this concept of three strikes and you're out or sort of no no judicial discretion in sentencing uh, specific crimes, that, that has been seen as some as an area to get away from. But we are seeing, to your point, a real reversal in tone and then specifically in legislation. And so this the item from Senator Beach is especially interesting because it introduces mandatory minimums, which is of great concern to many Democrats. However, it's also focusing on gun crimes and Democrats have really been pushing Republicans to focus more on gun violence and focus more on the fact that it's not just crime happening, but it's crimes happening with guns and um, to start to really focus on the guns being the problem, even as much as the criminals who are committing those crimes. And so we'll see where this bill goes. But it's certainly, I think, to your point, is the beginning of a number of initiatives to start to review and in some cases even roll back the criminal justice reforms that we saw in Georgia even just 10 years ago. There's so much going on under the gold dome. So much to talk about just today. Think about what we'll have on our next episode on Friday. We'll also answer your questions from the listener mailbag, which by the way, you can now call into. It's the Politically Georgia podcast hotline. You can call it anytime. Leave a question. We'll play it back and answer your question right here on the podcast. The number is 770-810-5297. That's 770-810-5297. Thanks so much for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast. You can count on new episodes to come out every Wednesday, every Friday, or whenever news breaks. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the AJC. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.